open up your Bible. We've been many places in the scriptures already this morning. We have much scripture read to us, read over us, all of it rich and wonderful. But I want you to meet me this morning, once again, as I hope you're expecting, in the Old Testament book of Esther. I want you to specifically meet me in Esther chapter 3, where the story continues of Esther and the world-changing work that God had for her. We have been now for many months in these two books. First of all, Ruth, now we're in the book of Esther, as I've said to you before, the only two books in the Bible named for women and, and remarkable, astonishing women they were. Their stories couldn't be more different from one another, and the work that God did through them was, was phenomenal. But what we want to see, and we're going to continue to see here this morning, at least what I hope you are gathering from this study as we go through it, is that though God did exceptional works through them, they were ordinary people like me and you. And that if we surrender our hearts to the Lord, if we are willing to seek Him and respond to Him, He can use us in our own unique, world-changing ways. And once again, Esther chapter 3 has much to say to us in that vein this morning. I'm going to begin reading today in Esther chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read all the way through chapter 3 and skip over then into the first few verses of chapter 4 because together they create one cohesive story that I believe God wants us to look at together this morning. So if you follow along in your Bible, Esther 3, verse 1, down through chapter 4, verse 3, this is what our Bibles say. After these events... King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he, Mordecai, was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, then... Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. 
And it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day. The thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. Now when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth, and in each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes." My friend and mentor, Daniel Henderson, often says that as 21st century American Christians, we are upstream swimmers in a downstream world. We are upstream swimmers in a downstream world. That is to say that the powerful current of our culture is moving emphatically in one direction. And as the current of culture moves in that direction, it is either sweeping up or pulling under absolutely everything in its path, while at the same time, those of us who know and follow Jesus Christ have been called by God's word to live in an entirely contrary way to the direction that current is going. In other words, when he says we are upstream swimmers in a downstream world, I think part of what he's trying to say to us, Daniel Henderson, is is that Jesus meant it when he said, in this world you will have trouble. Which is exactly where our new friend Mordecai found himself here in Esther chapter 3. Because as you may recall if you were with us last Sunday, last Sunday we were introduced to Mordecai. And we discovered that that this man was a a mid-level government official of Jewish ancestry under King Ahasuerus, ruler of the mighty Persian Empire, believed to be, if I understand correctly, the greatest empire on the face of the earth at that point in history. And while at the end of chapter 2, again, if you were here, perhaps you recall, Mordecai, the last we saw of him was that he had uncovered and exposed a plot to assassinate the king, thereby literally saving King Ahasuerus' life. Last week he was playing the part of a hero. This morning in chapter 3, he is now public enemy number one in the eyes of the king's newly appointed right-hand man, Haman. Haman, who even still today is considered one of the worst villains in all of Jewish history. 
Every year, as I understand it, I've never attended one, but every year I believe still that when, when Jewish people of the Jewish faith gather together for the annual festival, Feast of Purim, which is what the story of, of Esther inspired, they, they gather and one of the things they do is read the story of Esther all over again, remembering what happened in those days. And if I understand correctly, it is not at all uncommon in those gatherings for the congregation when the name of Haman is mentioned to boo and to hiss out loud because of what a wicked dude he happened to be. But once again, what I want you to see this morning, as we have seen throughout the study of Esther, as we have seen, or uh, uh, study of Ruth, and as we've seen so far through our study of Esther is this, that despite the fact that 2,500 years have passed since these events went down, What Haman's spat with Mordecai shows us is that as followers of Jesus, there are some things in the world today that we must not underestimate. Three of them specifically, as I've gone through this story, as I've tried to see what relevance, what value does it have for us today, there's all sorts of lessons we can take from it. But what I specifically want to share with you today is through this ancient story of two men and their feud with one another, there are at least three things that as followers of Jesus today, we must not underestimate if we want to live well for him in a downstream world. Number one. The first thing this story tells us, we dare not underestimate, if we want to faithfully follow Jesus today, is we must not underestimate, number one, the high cost of spiritual conviction. The potentially high cost of having spiritual, biblical, Christian conviction. Once again, as I've said to you the past couple of Sundays, there is a mystery, a great mystery to the book of Esther. The great mystery of the book of Esther is that not once in it, in anywhere, is is the name of God to be mentioned, to be found. He's not even made reference to a single time anywhere in the story. However, at the same time, I think we can safely assume that the flashpoint of this conflict between Haman and Mordecai and, and all that followed from it was, in fact, Mordecai's Jewish Look again with me at verse 3. Then the king's servants, excuse me, then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now, again, the king's command was that when Haman walks by, everybody bow down. He's my guy. You show him honor. And they ask him, his, his fellow government officials, the people he's around, why are you not doing what the king said to do? Verse 4, now, it was when they had spoken daily to him and he wouldn't listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. What's the reason you're not bowing down? For he had told them that he was a Jew. In other words, there was something about his faith. There was something about his heritage that would not let him show this man honor. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what it was. Whether it was a, a specific statute or commandment in the Old Testament law, he said, that's just uh, based on that, I can't do it. Uh, was it just something, maybe a, a matter of ethnic and, and religious Jewish pride that he said, this guy's a, a pagan and, and I'm a Jew and I can't show him honor? Or maybe it was really personal animosity toward Haman himself. Not all of it necessarily pure, but he's like, this is a wicked guy. This is a bad dude. I can't, in good conscience, show this man honor. The reason why it isn't clear. But what does seem clear is that he wasn't looking for a fight. And yet what verses 5 and 6 tell us is he got one anyway. Look again at your Bible. 
When Haman saw Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. As David Firth helpfully notes in, in talking about this conflict, this scene, he says, quote, Just as the king, back in chapter 1, could not distinguish between a personal affront and a genuine threat to his empire when bashed he refused to attend his party, so here in chapter 3, Haman takes Mordecai's refusal to bow down before him as a reason for genocide. Now listen, the New Testament clearly instructs every Christian to honor those in authority over us. The New Testament clearly instructs us as Christians to give Caesar his due, so to speak. The New Testament clearly instructs us, I think it was in Paul's words at a certain place to Timothy, that as followers of Jesus, we are to make it our ambition to live quietly, constructive, undisruptive lives. We aren't just to be making noise in the culture for making noises sake. However, since by definition we are, everybody say we are, since we are upstream swimmers in a downstream world, or at least we are supposed to be. There will be times when our convictions spark conflict. And following Christ will have a cost. So let me ask you a question. Just you and me. How firm is your commitment to Jesus Christ this morning? I know you're in church. You came on time. But how firm is your commitment to Jesus Christ? To, to paraphrase, to borrow from, from David in, in Psalm 1, is your delight in the law of the Lord? Do you make it your aim and ambition? Not perfect, maybe not even yet consistent, but, but to think on, to meditate on, to live in light of it day by day. Some days are better than others. But is that your aim? Is that your ambition? Is that your conviction? And the reason I ask why is because what David goes on to say in Psalm 1 is that it is by spending time in the Word of God, on your own, in the company of others, doing what we are doing here. That is the way the Bible says that you and I become like firmly planted, fruit-bearing trees for the Lord in this world. That is how it's done. And yet, now you know I love you. And I think you love me. But let's talk. Even so, we know that's true. Yet many of us, I suspect, have not yet resolved to even spend 15 minutes a day with the Lord. It's not that important. It's not that, that vital. Many of us, not you because you're here, but many of us in the church today struggle to say that, that 90 minutes once a week, every week, is a priority. It's raining out. It's snowing out. I stayed up to whatever it is. It's just not that important. And yet, yet, we think that when the tide turns against us, we'll be ready. And yet our roots 
We've seen what even strong roots are susceptible to in our city. Yet our roots aren't being sunk into the Lord and into his word. The Bible we claim to believe says otherwise. It says we must delight in the law of the Lord. It says we must spend time in the company of God's people. It says we dare not forsake the assembling of ourselves together because that is where strength in the Lord is found. We dare not underestimate, this story tells us, the potentially high cost of spiritual commitment or even the the potentially higher cost of of being unready when the challenges come because the, the current's going one way and we've been called to go the other. I think the first thing that Mordecai's example shows us is just that we dare not underestimate that there is a cost potentially high to to spiritual commitment and that's because of the second thing we dare not underestimate in in verses 7 through 15 and that is the hostility of an unbelieving world. The second thing this story tells us we, we cannot underestimate, we cannot take lightly is the hostility of an unbelieving world. You know, as I was reading and rereading this next section, let's say verse 7 down to about verse 15 over the past few days, a couple of contemporary expressions came to mind. The first one was, well, that escalated quickly. Because as you, as you look at this story, what you see, again, is that in no time, Haman has a personal bit of animosity toward Mordecai. Everybody in the kingdom bows down to him, but the fact that this one guy won't do it is driving him crazy. And in fact, it's driving him so crazy that what does it morph into? Again, look at verse 13. It morphs into letters being sent by couriers to all the king's provinces. Remember, this is the biggest kingdom on the face of the earth. To destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews. Because one man won't bow down. Women and children, young and old, near and far, on one day. And And I realized that there's a a sense in which all of that was made possible, all of that was made permissible, courtesy of another familiar expression, and that expression is do not disturb. Because as you continue with me in the story of Esther, you're going to see that if, if King Ahasuerus, if his kingdom, if his reign, if his administration had a motto, that would be it. Do not disturb. This guy did not like to be bothered with real work. You notice everybody else makes his decisions for him. You will notice that everybody else, he's always seeking counsel what to do. He doesn't want to be responsible for anything. And and that's certainly the case here. And Haman, I suggest you understood that well. Look at verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, remember, he's he's just boiling because of one man. He says, King, there's a certain people scattered, dispersed among all the peoples in All the provinces of your kingdom, their laws are different. They don't obey your laws. Some of this is true, some of this isn't. And it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. Now note, if you will, he doesn't even tell them who these people are, and the king doesn't even ask. Huh, they're just some people. And you think they ought to go. So, Haman. Haman knew how to play the king. If it is pleasing to the king, verse 9, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver. You want to know how much that is? That's 375 tons of silver. I don't know where he's coming up with this, but the 375 tons of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Today we call that a campaign contribution, and it works. 
It works because that's all it took. Verse 10, the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the hunt of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and now the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to him, silver is yours, people also do whatever you please. I, just, I don't want to deal with it. You want to kill some people, kill some people. And going back to verse 7, this is important as well. And it's also unclear, so I want to jump back up to it. Verse 7, when you, when you go back to that, it says that it was in the first month, the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus. That's when all this went down. It says, Per, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day, from month to month, until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. Now, just to try to cut through all the confusion of that, what we're simply being told in that verse is that through the ancient mysterious ritual of casting lots, we don't even know how it was done, we just know that in, in Ahasuerus' kingdom it was called Per, that a date was determined for this order to be carried out. And it was one year in the future, mass extermination, which if you think about it from the other side of the equation means that the people of God, the chosen people, the Jews who are aware of this, and this, this covered Jerusalem, this covered Judea, were living, going to spend the next year living under a literal death sentence. A day is coming and we're all going to die. And then as if to just sort of, sort of underscore Ahasuerus and Haman's sort of collective callous indifference to it all. It says in verse 15 that when the message went out, while the decree was issued there in the citadel of Susa where the king was staying, while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city was in confusion. They just didn't care. At this point, if you are tuned into what the story is saying, I wouldn't be surprised at all if words like holocaust come to mind. Pogrom, ethnic cleansing. Because that's exactly what was happening here. And it's not the first nor the only time, obviously, that this happened or was decreed toward God's people, the Jews. And if you're like me, when you read these things in the scripture and you look at them in history, you find yourself, I think, asking why. What is this all about? Why such hostility? Why is it always the Jews? Why, why is there such animosity toward them in the world. Well, well, at the surface level, it's because of the human heart, right? The pride of the human heart. And one of the ugly ways that, that human pride manifests itself is in racism. It's in religious and ethnic bigotry. Just, just animosity for one kind of people toward, toward another. But at a deeper level, the Bible has an answer to this question. Why? Why is it always the Jews? Why was this going on here? And it's actually not as complicated as, as we might think, because the Bible says that behind all the wicked activity of this world, there is an adversary. His name is Satan. He is real. His name means adversary. The Bible also says he's highly intelligent, and he has known since day one that God has a plan of salvation, had a plan of salvation to bring, to bring redemption through the world through the Jewish people. So what is Satan, the adversary, going to do? What did he do? Well, he spent all of his time from day one trying to figure out how to eliminate the Jewish people. Because if you eliminate the Jewish people, you eliminate the plan of salvation, and he, in his mind, and his thinking, in his scheme, wins. Well, Jesus came, didn't he? King of the Jews. 
died, rose from the dead. We were reminded of that vividly and wonderfully this morning. He won at the cross, but Satan didn't quit. Instead, he just shifted his fire. He's still on the Jews. Clearly, that's still happening today, but now it encompasses the church. Why? Because the church has been commissioned with the message of the gospel to take it to the whole world. And he doesn't care if he has to destroy us or just distract us. He does plenty of both. If he can do one or the other to us, then the message doesn't get out. That's why we are in his line of fire. That's why the world hates Christ. And his people. Listen to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it is against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, Stand firm. Are you equipped for that fight? Are you ready? Because it's on. And we dare not underestimate, A, the high cost of spiritual conviction. B, the hostility of an unbelieving world. The world is not neutral. The Bible says it is opposed to God. Now that's the bad news. You ready for some good news? Half of you are ready for good news. I'm going to give it to all of you anyway, okay? <laughs> Third, there is good news to be found in this passage. It is challenging news, but good news nonetheless. Because the third thing this story tells us, not to underestimate, along with spiritual conviction and the world's hostility, is the fact that the hand of God is at work behind the scenes. Do not underestimate. Do not dismiss the fact that God's hand is working in ways we can't see. You know, kids today have it so easy. Because back in 1980, when I was eight and a half years old, I had to wait three years to find out if Darth Vader really was Luke Skywalker's father. <laughs> and it drove me crazy. Did he mean it? Was he lying? I don't know. The movie, it was three years of waiting and wondering and buying action figures and imagining in my head what is going to be the outcome. Now, eventually, I did find out, but all along, there was an author. There was a producer. There was a screenwriter. He knew the answer already. He knew where the story was going, unlike the sequel trilogies that came out a couple years ago. <laughs> Just my two cents. The writer, the author, knew where the story was going. The rest of us, what did we have to do? We had to wait to see how it's going to happen, to see what's going to develop. And, and I don't know if you've noticed, but God does a lot of that with us too. Sometimes it seems like God's favorite word is wait. Wait. And that's certainly what he was doing here in Esther chapter 4, because I would submit to you that, that if you're at all a student of the Bible, there's probably a part, if you've never read the story of Esther before, that, that you might assume, I might assume, that as chapter 3 ends and we, we, so to speak, turn the page over into chapter 4, that what's waiting for us at the beginning of chapter 4 is another one of those glorious but God moments, right? But God struck Haman dead in his tracks. 
but God caused all the couriers to lose the messages along the way. The word never got out. God interfered. God did something. God changed the path. But in verses 1 through 3, we got no such thing. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the midst of the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, it was the same. Great mourning among the Jews, fasting, weeping, wailing, many laying in sackcloth and ashes. Let me ask you something. Do you remember what I told you last week when I said that God's invisibility is not a sign of inactivity? Just true confessions. I've had to remember that a lot this week. <laughs> and, I, and I imagine that in various ways you have too. That invisibility is not a sign of, of inactivity because eventually we are going to see as we track through the story of Esther in the weeks to come that God was at work behind the scenes. God was up to some stuff. And ultimately he will turn the tables in a most dramatic way in a year. A real 365-day circuit around the sun where real people had to go on doing real life in the real world. Remember, they don't know what's going to happen. Under the very real backdrop of life or death uncertainty. And again, while the details differ, God does the same with each of us. Maybe he's doing it today with you. He does it to us individually. He works that way among us corporately, as a church, as the church. And, and all we can do is wait. However, as we wait, while we wait, for God to show his hand, to God to give us a clue that, that he doesn't know where it's going and he knows what he's doing and he's going to, to, as he promised, work it all out for his glory. I believe Mordecai shows us what to do in these verses. Turn to God. Lay it out all before God. And trust in God who is, in fact, sovereign over and fully engaged in it all. And notice, he didn't just do it once. The idea is that this mourning, that this grieving, this cry for help to God went on and on and on. And you know, to, to drill down into that just a little bit deeper before we try to pull all this to to a close, with that said, I want you to come back with me to this idea of being upstream swimmers in a downstream world, of, of going against the flow, spiritually speaking, because you've been called to go against the flow, and so have I. I don't know a lot about swimming. I certainly don't know a lot about upstream swimming. I imagine it takes a lot of different things, but I know that two things are absolutely essential to swim upstream against the current, and that is two strong arms. And if you only have one or you only use one, guess what? You're going to go around and around and around in circles, which to me sounds a lot like the church in America today. We're doing a lot of stuff. We're making a lot of noise. We're making a lot of plans, and we're not making much difference. And I believe that the answer, the reason why, 
is not complicated because while the world is, in fact, hard enough on Christians already, so often we, I have made it worse by neglecting one or both of the two strong arms God's given us to swim against the current and to make a difference. And they are both arms that I don't think it's reading between the lines to say Mordecai utilized here. One was the word of God. Again, why did he take his stand? Because of his identity. How did he know his identity? Because of God's covenant. How did he know God's covenant? Because God had given it in his law. And though he was living far from home, he knew who he was. And there's only one way God reveals himself, revealed that to them, that was in his word. And it was on the word of God that he took his stand. On the word of God, he refused to compromise. That's one arm. And then I believe the other, with all my heart, is prayer, which is what is woven through and undergirded all of his actions in chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. And listen to me, times have changed, but God's methods haven't. Times have changed, God's methods haven't, because for the church to survive, and I believe thrive, and in order to take anybody else along to heaven with us when we go, each of us must decide we're going to use both arms as we swim. Using neither means you're just going to be swept along. Using one, you're going to go around in circles. We need to be people of the book with prayer. We need to be people who dig into God's word. We need to be people who seek God's face in prayer, taking it on faith that that's just how he works. Because listen, history is going somewhere. And if you've read ahead, it's going to get worse before it gets better. That doesn't mean only worse, all worse. I believe God's going to bring revival, but, but the trajectory is set. And in the end, Jesus wins. In the end, Jesus wins. And that is why our part, as today's big idea says, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to keep seeking God's face. Keep seeking God. God's face, even when you cannot see what he's doing. Keep seeking his face. Keep opening his word. Yes, it takes diligence. Yes, it takes effort. But so does everything you care about in life. It takes assembling together. It takes leaning on one another. It takes being willing to say, I don't know it all and I need help. Brother, sister, will you help me? We are upstream swimmers in a downstream world, but we are not helpless. Jesus is on our side. Father, I pray that today, as we step out into a world, again, Lord, as Luther said, this world with devils filled, our striving is losing or it would be, we're not the right man on our side, the man of your own choosing, the Lord Jesus. Father, I thank you today that we do have a rock. I thank you today that there is an anchor for the soul. I thank you today, Father, that, that you have, have not shown us everything, but you've shown us history is going somewhere. And you have told us, we have the final page. Jesus wins. Father, we, 
We just want to be faithful and fruitful in the meantime. And I pray, Father, that we will more and more, as the days grow darker, as the climb gets harder, that rather than raging against the darkness, we will embrace the light. Father, the world knows what we're against, and they don't care. Help us to show them who we are for. The carpenter of Nazareth, the Jew on a cross, the risen Christ, seated at your right hand, who loves with an everlasting love. Father, help us take that good news boldly into the world this week. We ask that you'd take the things of truth spoken here this morning and all, as always seal them to our hearts and let all the rest be forgotten and slip away so that we leave living for Jesus alone in whose name we pray.